0: Welcome to Watershed's October podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. I'm delighted um, for this month to be joined by Andrew Kelly from Bristol Ideas. And Andrew is joining us for a couple of reasons, uh, which is that Andrew has put together uh, with Bristol Ideas, put together a season looking at the city Paris on film, which develops out of some of the work that we've been doing over the past year. Um, and also, Andrew is uh, an authority on All Quiet and the Western Front, which is a, has has been made into a new film, new German film, um, which opens this month before going on to Netflix. So welcome, welcome very much, Andrew. Uh,
1: hello, Mark. Good to
0: see you. Um, so before we go on to um, the films, um, we've, we've actually been uh, working for a good couple of decades together, actually. Um, I think we probably came to Bristol um, at roughly the same time. I was, came to programme Watershed and you came to set up, um, a couple of decades back, Bristol Cultural Development Partnership. Um, so I mean, lots have happened in Bristol in, in those two in those two decades, um, but culture is very much was obviously at the heart of BCDP. Um, I mean, how just in general, how how have you seen Bristol uh, develop and evolve in in terms of culture, and how how important has culture been to that sort of development?
1: Well, I'd say it's been absolutely central, Mark. I- I hate to say this, Mark, but next year is we mark three decades, so it's um, time is passing very quickly. Bristol Cultural Development Partnership, now called Bristol Ideas, was set up by a partnership of the private sector, Business West, Arts Council England, and Bristol City Council, and each of those partners had a reason for setting up the partnership, but generally they wanted to help get Bristol moving forward. Um, I remember someone said to me, pretty much in my first week when I arrived, why have you come to the city where good ideas come to die? And disturbing though that was, I have heard that said about other cities as well. And at the time, Bristol, you know, had quite a vibrant range of cultural activity. You know, there was Watershed's work, there was Bristol Old Vic, there was lots of community work, there was the museums and galleries and so on. But I think what we've seen over the past three decades is, first of all, is is culture being much more centrally placed within Planning in the city. I don't think it's perfect by any means, and there's a long way to go, but it's now considered as important, and that's economically important, and it's important for its own sake. You've seen a huge development around the city centre area, the renewal of of a lot of the cultural institutions, uh, watershed being one of those. You know, you had two screens when you arrived. One, one and a half, Andrew. And perhaps still two and a half then, maybe. But um, <laughs> And you've seen um, new cultural facilities come up, like um, what's now called We the Curious, what was then at Bristol. And we've played a part in a number of these projects we haven't been central to them all but we've worked a lot in the background you know getting things going raising money for projects Mm -hmm. making sure they could happen freeing up the organizations to do what they're best at both organizations and individuals in fact so we've put a lot of money into individual writers and artists but also into organizations themselves so I think there has been this huge shift and it was brought home to me recently I won't say who said this but a very prominent person in London, I bumped into um, this person, probably 25 years ago, I said I was from Bristol. And he said, "Ah, Bristol's a problem city, isn't it? And then 25 years later, this person was giving a talk about a big heritage project they were working on around the country. This person was asked the question, what do other cities aspire to being? And the response was, they aspire to being like Bristol. So I think there's been this huge shift. And none of us it's not perfect by any means, and we we're heading into a very difficult period, I think, with post-pandemic.
0: It's interesting because I I have my my own example of that quote, which is that when I you know first came in for the first few years, as you say, now almost thirty years ago, you know I'm not from Bristol, neither are you. I'm, I come from <coughs> Glasgow. You know, Glasgow had undergone that huge city of culture in the late eighties, early nineties, very self-confident um city didn't need it it wasn't short of self-confidence as a city but but i used to get family come and visit me in this new city called bristol you know and they'd come and visit me and then i'd go into work um they come at the weekend i'd go into work on the monday and people would say to me oh what did you do with your visiting relatives and i would say i took them to bath and, and that was in the, the early days. And that was the thing. You go, oh, Bath, that's a great city for them to visit. Yeah. You know, Bristol didn't have that sort of sense of identity, really. Whereas now it's the complete, it's kind of reversed. Yeah. And I think as, you know, the city, you talked about Harbourside there a bit. I mean, that's been a huge development in in terms of the heart of the city. There's been a kind of real growth and confidence and self of the city and what it's got to offer and its cultural attractions and the way in which it's it's treated City planning and stuff, which I think um, you know, is when you sort of reflect back, as we're doing there, you really do see a shift in a city going from th- that place where ideas go
1: to die through to somewhere that's much um, that's really dynamic. I think there's an. I know I'd agree with you totally, and I think that I mean Bath is probably better known internationally still.
0: Yeah, I mean it's all heritage side of things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But you know, there there were a number of significant things I would add there. First of all, um, we have been disappointed a number of times. I mean, the biggest disappointment to me, well there were two. The first was not finishing the concert hall development on harbor side, which would have been a you know, not just a fantastic center for for arts and music. Um, but would also have been a symbolic building, much like the Sydney Opera House. This was where the amphitheatre... That's correct, yeah. Wonderfully designed by German architects. um, And I've been doing these interviews lately, of which you've been one of them, Mark, looking back at 30 years. And for, for a lot of people, that's been a very significant disappointment for them too. The second was a disappointment in the sense we didn't win it, which was European Capital of Culture. But I think the important thing there was we got a lot out of it. We had a plan for ultimate disappointment. We were able to deliver so much uh, that we said we would uh, do in that plan. Um, And the third project, I would say, is is perhaps the least likely of all to talk about, but is the Legible City project, which was ostensibly about signage in the city, a very important and good signage system, um, and still in operation. Mm -hmm. But what that did do was also bring culture into the heart of the planning department, and showed them what culture could offer in terms of placemaking, in terms of urban design, in terms of simply the feel of the place, but also in terms of how people get to use a city, experience a city, come to love a city in many ways. And I think those of us who do love cities and you know spend a lot of time walking around cities... You know the kind of feeling you get when you're in a good Mm. place. And that might be because there's lots of cafes. It might be there's lots of artwork on the streets. It might simply be there's lots of park benches you can sit on and good green spaces and so on. But I think we've got a good idea now about what makes a good cultural city. And I think Bristol is, you know, moving forwards and has gone a long way now to fulfilling that.
0: And and one of the things, you know, you talked about there is a kind of signature architecture as being, you know, obviously you, you can identify places by those kind of signature buildings or, or landmarks and I know that you're constantly sort of exploring the cities through film which is why we're talking because um you've, you've continued it in this year um the Festival of Ideas is looking at Paris as a city <coughs> it's, it, By 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 doing this is this something that you want to uh, you know the focusing on other cities is this something that you kind of want to have um, Bristol reflect on how other cities are, you know, what we might
1: learn from Mm. these cities. Oh, absolutely. And film is very important to us in terms of our work. You know, one of our early projects, Mark, you'll remember, because we spent a lot of time on it and um, spent a lot of time since on it, was setting up the Encounters Festival, then called Brief Encounters, Uh, still going strong uh, 25 years on. That's a really
0: interesting point, Andrew, because when that was set up, and you know, we have talked about it elsewhere, but when that was set up, we didn't think about it as being both a festival, nor did we think about it becoming a, a signature identifiable as Bristol mm. festival.
1: I mean, that that wasn't in the planning, which is quite interesting. But it, it's happened, and I think you know, huge tribute should be paid to those who you know, organized it and continue to organize it. I mean, it's a very different festival. I mean, you'll remember the first one, which was um, relatively small, one would say. Um, You know, a few programs. It was just successful enough for us to say, well, let's do it again. And then, of course, you're into the difficult phase of consolidating it and growing it. But you look at it now, and it's a really remarkable project. In fact, it's next week, isn't it? Well, it's this week, isn't it? It's last month
0: in recording terms, but it's become an international event which draws on the strengths of Bristol and the wider region for short filmmaking, for animation, and it's it's become international, and, and it's kind of taking Bristol externally um, as well which is and bringing um, international talent to bristol during the time of the festival so you know I kind of it is an example of where culture really has that role
1: to play in in terms of a city identity i mean one of the things that as i said film is really important to us and we partly because bristol has quite a rich heritage in terms of film and cinema you know you think about watershed was the first then bfi regional film theater when it moved mm. from the, the art Centre Cinema to, you know, all the work we've done on Freeze Green, William Freeze Green in the city, uh, to, you know, Bristol being a centre of a natural history film production, animation. And
0: know a uh, UNESCO City of Film, of course.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So so film has always been important to them, but also film, I think, is a way of um, encouraging discussion and learning mm. and debate and we've always used film like that, which is why the Paris season is so important to us, I think. we We wanted to focus on Paris in our future city film festival, because first of all, you know, it's the city of light. It's always had a strong relationship with cinema. You could do Mm -hmm. a whole season of Jean-Luc Godard and the city, for example, you know, and and you, you may be doing that in the future. Um, But with all the changes that are affecting cities now, and cities are under immense pressure from COVID. There was concern that cities would go into decline; people would leave cities. You had the cost of living crisis. You've got the immense housing costs in cities. You've got concerns about the future of work. You've got fears about immigration. You've got um, you know public protest. And Paris brings these all together in a way. And some of the most remarkable films about cities, I think, in recent years have come from. Paris you know I'm thinking of we're showing a, a film about City Gagarin the, the the housing estate and that is not just about Paris but housing is a problem for us all and we can well, learn from that I'm looking very much forward to seeing the We, the new film which is the one looking at suburban areas alongside the RER commuter train and, and those communities there um, so there's a very rich amount of material there that we can use. I was going to say with the
0: Gagarin um, which we screened uh, at Watershed couple of years back. It's a, a fantastic film which is set in one of those iconic housing estates and it, you know, just thinking about the housing estates, they've gone from being really iconic solutions to being sites of tension and where problems are because of the design, um, because of the way in which cities are forced communities um, t- together and France has really sort of explored that. I, I'm thinking of La Haine which was one of the kind of first mm-hmm. Um, films to really address the the tensions. The band we, I think, they're the called. If you excuse my French, but there's a couple. Of Les Miserables, which is, um, uh, 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 of course, you think about the the Victor Hugo and it is that reference to it, but it's a kind of modern update. Again, setting the the band So both films are kind of um, picking up on that end, but addressing mm. you know
1: what happened, what the tensions within there. No, absolutely, and these tensions are very, you know clearly apparent Um you think of the you know the yellow vest protests that happened um in in recent years and you think of the huge growth of the 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 Marine Le Pen and the and the National Front there um which of course is you know a worrying trend across other European countries as well um but you also I think look at at how places can work together well we've you know one film we're showing as part of this season is Paris Caligram, the, the documentary film, um, which is about Paris in the 60s. Um, and there you have, you know, there are tensions there. There's tensions particularly over Algeria. Um, but you also have many different ways the city working together in, in, a, in, a, in a cosmopolitan way. And similarly, the, the new film by Alice Diop, hugely rising star, you know, um, winner of the Venice uh, Film Award recently. Um, this showed the different communities along this uh, the commuter train uh, route from the, through the city from north to south. I find it a very moving film, actually, and I think it shows how cities could work together. I think it's going to be hard work, though. I think that you know the, the changes that cities are going through, the fact that cities are hollowing out, you know, if you're... I think if both of us were moving to this part of the world now, Mark, we'd find it very difficult to afford a house, yeah, for example... Yeah um and um um and you know when we've got the big changes to come you know with with changes to work and so on i think we you know cities should be the solution to these things they should be the solution to the environmental crisis or leading the solutions to the environmental crisis but my goodness, there's a lot of hard work to do on all of
0: this. Yeah, I mean it's a, an immensely complex, and you see that um, complexity played out in in cities, and you know the, the films that you're putting on um, really explore that. And I was particularly drawn to um, Notre Dame on fire. I've not I've not seen it yet, but 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 that sense of which I got from when it actually happened the fire at Notre Dame, and it, you know made me um, reflect immediately on the Glasgow School of Art. Um, which went and fire, and nothing yeah. is forever. And you you realise actually that you think these these buildings are um, forever, um, and and they will just be there. But you know the Glasgow School of Art made me realise that nothing exists forever, and those things that are identified with cities are vulnerable. And you see it in um, with what happened at Notre Dame, and it went to the very heart, or you could feel it going to the very heart of the Parisian. Life and
1: identity. I think when you have a, you know, a, a huge shock like that, like in Glasgow, like at Grenfell, mm. um, like, um, you know, Notre Dame. I think it's really interesting about Notre Dame and the debates they're having about do they exactly rebuild it as it was, you know, or are there going to be some different designs? I think, um, you know, it, it does give cities a chance to to look at these things, um, though. Of course, they're immensely tragic. Uh, um, the the when these um, type of, of um, fires take place, um, I do think cities though cities do change. Well, um, I mean, you know, everything. I was, say, when you, when say. I was thinking about that is the changes.
0: Um, of course, it, it happened very much here in Bristol around Coulston. Um mm. We've we've seen a yeah. um, completely uh, uh, change in the the sort of issues kind of come out um, and be uh, dealt with in a very real and direct way.
1: Mm. No, I think that's another one. I, I mean, I think we're going to look back on the period, say ni- late nineteen nineteen, sorry late twenty nineteen to, you know, end of twenty twenty two, That's quite a remarkable period. Really, you know, we we had the 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 largest pandemic we'll hopefully mm. ever live through. Um, we don't know that. We had you know the the the, the Colston statue coming down. Uh, you've got now cost of living crisis on. This is a very, very difficult period. But one where change is that is 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 an opportunity. I think, and um, the city has really struggled to deal with the Colston legacy over a long, long period of time. I can remember when we were building the concert hall on the harbourside area. I can remember the debates then, and now we're going back to the nineteen nineties about whether the new concert hall should be called colston hall and in the end we uh, and i was very much keen to get a new name out of this um in the end it was called the harborside center which i think is future-proofed as much as you're able to future proof a name um but of course there's now the issue about what you do with the plinth um i quite like the idea of an empty plinth i think it says something but i also like the fourth plinth in trafalgar square in fact it's the only plinth most people, I suspect, look at when they go there and can remember. Um, who of us can remember what's on the other three plinths in Trafalgar Square?
0: But it's it's that sense that the city is always evolving, and you know the, those those tensions around uh, um, the historical and the evolving and the changing, which is is what is really represented um, in the season. And I, actually thinking about Gagarin. I, I suddenly remember that's actually about um, the houses being pulled down, but the, the people who did live there feeling this sense of connection and actually loss in the historical. So there's always those um, incredibly dynamic forces that are happening um, within cities. So a, a great um, selection of films. And you'll also be doing some some events um, as well to uh, open up some of the issues here. And if you go to watershed.co.uk, you'll, you'll see them... Um, listed there, uh, and another um, film we've got coming up, which is going to open, and I mentioned at the beginning, Andrew, which is, I a, a, a immediately thought about you when um, I saw it was it was coming out, is a new um, version, and a German version of All Quiet in the Western Front. Um, I mean, just give us some some background, if you will, on on um, All Quiet in the Western Front, because it was it was a novel, um, first of all.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's one of the most remarkable books of our time, and I think the 1930 version of the film is one of the most remarkable films of, our, of, of cinema's history, really. I mean, there are three, to me, great films about the First World War. The first is All Quiet on the Western Front. The second is La Grande Illusion, Jean Renoir's film from 1937. And then in the 50s, you had Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, all of which you've shown a number of times at Watershed. Uh, I'm sure. I I first saw All Quiet on the Western Front when I was a young teenager. And at that time... This is The Loose Milestone, 1930. This is The Loose Milestone. This is the 1930 film. I should say there was a second Hollywood version um, directed by Delbert Mann, which wasn't so successful. Um, But I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, So I saw this at a time when there were no videos available, when you couldn't even video record something. So it was on quite late at night, I remember. And I recall being immensely moved by this film and resolved to research this film as much as I could. And it took me many years um, at a time when there was no Internet. Um, and But an exciting time when you would get material through the post, you know, and you get you know photocopies of reviews from Denmark or whatever. And I would pay tribute. I, I eventually published a book about All Quiet on the Western Front. And I pay tribute to all those archivists around the world who you know, have kept this material safe for so long. The book was first published in 1928. It was written by Eric Maria Remarque, who was a German soldier and a veteran of the First World War. Um, he was hugely disillusioned with the war and with Germany uh, following the war. He'd written this book. Um, it took a long time for him to come to terms with the war. And I think there's this interesting period where following the First World War, the great memoirs of the war and the great books of the war took a, around a decade to come out. Uh, and as happened, then films followed. The um, All Quiet on the Western Front was translated into English and published in 1929, uh, became a huge international best selling book. Uh, but of course, the millions that were reached in the book were far exceeded by the tens of millions that could be reached in cinema at the time and it was turned into a film in 1930 directed by Lewis Milestone who was a um, who had originally come from um, Russia um, and um, he um, had been working in Hollywood for, for 10 years um, had won an Oscar for the, the only time the best comedy Oscar was ever awarded um, and, um, and eventually um, was re- uh, All Quiet was the best film of the year in the Academy Awards that year I think the film is an incredible piece of work. I mean, it's an incredible piece of work. It's pre-code um, in 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 Hollywood terms, so it's made before the Hays Code so came in. More explicit,
0: is um, it? Where with the, in this yeah. in this case with violence yeah. and with yeah. the the, the yeah. impact yeah. of war. Yeah.
1: yeah, so it's an incredibly violent yeah. film. Um, it showed, I think, the reality of the trenches for the first time in cinema. Um, there's um, some male nudity in it as they're filming as they're filmed in the river before they go over and see the french women uh, on the other side so there was controversy over the fraternization between german soldiers and french women uh, but it was the reality of it i think that was important and the trench scenes were remarkable um, milestone um freed the camera he was very much influenced by eisenstein and by the russian filmmakers um, so he was able to do these incredible shots of the battlefield using a big crane as well um and so the reality of it moved a great many people actually frightened people when it was seen um it was a big success um it was very downbeat film as you'd expect the book is downbeat um, and in fact there's a story which is po- probably apocryphal but i'll say it anyway which is when carl lemley who was the head of universal studios then saw the film for the first time he turned to Milestone and said, well, can you give it a happy ending? And Milestone said, well, I could perhaps let the Germans win the war. And um, because this film also showed, as it based on the book, the German side of the war as well, which was controversial mm. as well. Um, so um, you had this film, um, winner of Academy Awards, huge international success, and then it opens in Germany in late 1930 where the Nazis used it as a campaign tool. You know, there were parades outside the cinema. There were, you know, rats were released in the cinema. Um, there was barracking. Um, when Louis Milestone, who was in Berlin for the premiere, was introduced to the audience, apparently there was no mm. applause. Um, it was a very, very difficult period uh, and was subsequently banned um, by the, the Nazis uh, banned in in other countries. And the, as author, well. the author
0: was um, uh, demonised by the Nazis as well,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, as you mentioned earlier. Oh yeah. No, no, he was basically had to leave Germany. Um, he then went on to write a number of other books. Uh, there was a trilogy of books um, of the First World War. There was um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Then there was The Road Back, which is the story of the German soldiers coming back to Germany after the war and then Three Comrades, which was set in the high-inflation Weimar period. They were equally as controversial. The Road Back, um, made by James Whale, who had made Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein, and felt that The Road Back was going to be his crowning glory. Um, they, it would have been an incredibly powerful film, but was cut very badly by the studio, following insistence from the censors. And also... and. Really haven't quite got to the bottom of what exactly happened, but by the German ambassador in Los Angeles, who was like a mini Hitler, who um, you know had a lot of influence on the film industry at the time, um, that could have been one of the great Hollywood films, and uh, mm. and sadly it didn't happen.
0: The thing about this new film adaptation is it is made by a German, um, and I think it's it's Edward Verger who is has talked a lot about, you know, the bringing a German um, perspective, obviously, post-both wars, uh, making it from a kind of contemporary point of view, um, but very much getting that anti-war message, which, of course, was in Remarque's novels and Milestone, mm. but from, a, from a, a, a German perspective. And I know you're at a disadvantage, Andrew, because you haven't seen it yet. Um, I, I saw it last month at the Toronto Film Festival, as I say, it's Netflix um, that it's been made for, but it's getting a, a small cinema release, and we're opening it in the cinema on the 14th of October. It goes out on Netflix um, two weeks later. But um, I initially thought to myself, you, you know, it's this subject matter's been done. Milestones, you know, made the film. It's iconic. Um, you know, that Paths of Glory, the films that you mentioned, they've all they've all been done. Why? And I felt this a little bit with with Sam Mendes' 1917, you know, it's like, why kind of go back to the the First World War? Why go back to that um, subject matter that we, we kind of know so well um, in some respects? And so, I, you know, I went in to see the film for a number of reasons, one of which is that, you know, we'll hopefully show it, but just to get a sense of, you know, how it's going to play out. And I... It, 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 it's huge impact. I mean, the kind of atmosphere in the cinema uh, with it was was just extraordinary, because I, as we feel, we sort of know those battle scenes you mentioned, the uh, trenches, etc. Um, it, it, it's really, really powerful. Verger has just done such an amazing job, and it's actually a timeless uh, message about the futility of war. And if you kind of think, oh, we've kind of done that, it, you immediately think, well, look what's happening in Ukraine. Look what's happening with with at, at this moment in time with what we see is um, Russian young Russian people being mobilised but not wanting to go. Um, and and you, you look at a film like that and you go, yeah, I mean, why is this still going on? The kind of message that Remarque uh, wrote in the book. And, you know, his, his, I think um, Verga has just done such a kind of brilliant job in conveying that timeless message but also what's what's interesting you'll be interested in this um andrew from your your research is that an interest in that period is that um he also parallels it with the kind of setting of the peace agreement post-world war one which of course had a lot of problems within it which led ultimately as well to the rise of nazi so you see that that you see that the war isn't and, you know that kind of beginning and end of wars is not the case either. I mean, what happens post-war obviously affects um, the coming months and years. And so it's a very—it's um actually—it's a, a film set it, it, in the World War One, but it's actually a film about now. Um, and then technically, visually, everything—it's really, really powerful. And I will just—it is extraordinary in the cinema. So I really do hope that people get a chance to. Um, see it in the cinema
1: I was going to say that, you know, watching it on Netflix is fine but seeing these films in the cinema hugely mm. powerful I think um, and I, I, I'm pleased to hear that it also covers that post-war period because that's not a subject which has been covered well in cinema um, war is much more exciting than the negotiations that follow um, despite the fact that as you pointed out these negotiations and agreements helped set the, the scene for the next 20 years of horrors, mm. really, in uh, in 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 Europe, 25 years of horrors. I think there is a venerable tradition in Germany of these films. I mean, with in the same year that All Quiet on the Western Front was released in Hollywood in 1930, you had West Front 1918 released by G.W. Pabst, and then the following year you had Kameradschaft, both very strongly anti-war films, And um, but, of course, then were first of all, dismissed, attacked, and then um, tried to be destroyed when the the Nazis took power. Um, Can I ask about this film, Mark, All Quiet? Is it in black and white or is it in colour? No, it's in in colour. Because when they made the remake of All Quiet on the West Front, that was in colour. And I do think war looks more powerful in black and white than in Mm. colour, actually. Mm. I think if you think about films like La Grande Illusion and you think about Paths Mm. of Glory, and Kubrick could have made Paths of Glory in colour, of course, in the 50s, um, but didn't he made it in black and white? Uh, but I obviously will suspend judgment on that until I have a chance. Yeah, to see I mean, it. it's um, it, uh,
0: without giving any um, anything away in terms of how it's how it's constructed. I think Berger he, he really really manages to make a powerful cinematic statement to such an extent that yeah. Germany has put it forward um, for the Oscars. Yeah. Um, we should announce next next year um, so I, I, yeah I'm, I look forward to talking about it with you uh, once you have the chance to see it Andrew but thanks very much mm-hmm. for providing yeah. um, more context to it and yeah. uh, all quiet in the Western Front like Andrew's um, Bristol Ideas um, Paris season is on at Watershed this month and please do go to watershed.co.uk to find out more information and thank you very much Andrew
1: Thank you very much, Mark.